Hello and welcome to Cannabis Grand Rounds, a production by physicians with advanced degrees in cannabis medicine. Your hosts, Dr. Lee Van Oker, Dr. Les Matthews, and Dr. Hal Altman, will offer unbiased medical cannabis education for healthcare providers and the motivated public. Our content is selected with the objective to fully explore cannabis as science and medicine and pledges to reflect current cannabis knowledge with no hidden agenda nor sponsorships. Hello and welcome back to Cannabis Grand Rounds. My name is Les Matthews and I'm joined today by Dr. Hal Altman as co-founders of this podcast and I want to welcome you back for another episode. This is a podcast that's produced by healthcare professionals for healthcare professionals on all things cannabis. We have been very fortunate to have the opportunity to have as our guest, Dr. Ari Grice. Uh, Dr. Grice is the medical director of the cannabis department of the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia, and he is a clinical assistant professor of rehabilitative medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Grice is and has been an active researcher in the field of medical cannabis, particularly as it pertains to the use of cannabis to treat chronic pain and try to help mitigate the use of opioid medications. Uh, In our earlier podcast with Dr. Grice, we spent some time exploring some of the uh, high-level issues that he faced in doing cannabis research, uh, dealing with regulatory issues, dealing with uh, IRB approval, and things of that nature, which are daunting and point out, again, the, um, uh, the value of folks like Dr. Grice who are willing to tackle these challenges and try to advance our knowledge of the efficacy of medical cannabis. In, in this uh, second podcast with Dr. Grice, what we would like to do is try to take a little deeper dive into some of the specifics of the most recent research that he has done. Um, so Ari, if, if we can, as I understand it, your most recent work involved uh, looking at medical cannabis in the management of chronic pain in two cohorts of patients, and I believe one was back pain and the other was knee osteoarthritis. Am I correct about that? Well, our osteoarthritis group included patients with hip, knee, shoulder, and maybe some um, okay. ankle osteoarthritis. But it was a lot of knees. Okay, so so it was a more diffuse osteoarthritic group, obviously, and, and most likely an older patient population as well? Correct. And we, we basically separated out spinal pain from non-spinal pain. So so the spinal pain group was a separate research cohort, is that correct? Correct. So to... Um, To cut to the chase a little bit, based on the work that you did in those two groups of chronic pain patients, did you conclude that cannabis was a potential uh, viable alternative to use of other medications, particularly opioids, for treating that chronic pain that those patients experienced? We really did, Les. I mean, I think the interesting thing when you look at our data is there's there's a lot of uniformity in in the outcomes. So... Uh, we we did a sub-analysis to separate out, you know, osteoarthritic patients from chronic back pain patients, but the findings really weren't very different at all. And when you look at our data set, which I think is pretty robust and growing, um, most of our patients within three months after they had access to medical cannabis were able to find products that were helpful. 
Um, and by three months, m- uh, the, the basic trend is that there's improved pain, quality of life, and function. And then things really plateau over the next six to nine months and don't change much. But I, I think uh, when we look at the patients who are using controlled substances before and after their cannabis certification, that that data was surprisingly good and showed really um, significant reductions in opioid and benzodiazepine use. And the thing that we obviously don't know for sure is that only because these patients were using cannabis. There's a variety of reasons why someone might have been on an, an oxycodone four months prior to their cannabis certification. Um, some people had surgery and then they stopped using the medicine because they had recovered. But many of our patients were using controlled substances for chronic pain, depression, anxiety. And really what we saw, I think, was telling. And, and, and basically that is that an overwhelming majority of patients were able to reduce their consumption of controlled substances. And close to 40% were able to stop completely. And, um, and what we really understand about opioid addiction and overdose mortality rates is that Oftentimes, it's that deadly combination of benzodiazepines and opioids, and also it's usually high opioid users users in terms of their their dosages. So, any attempt to reduce the dosages of of these medicines, and especially the combination of the two, I think can potentially save lives. And um, you know, as as we talk about in, in our practice, like any effort to reduce opioids is a good effort, but you can't just take away opioids from patients. You, you have to provide an alternative. And I think that many of our patients are finding that it's as good or better with a lot less side effects. So Dr. Grayson, the last time that we spoke, uh, we talked about some of the challenges of, of not having uniform product, of being sort of at the mercy of the patient in terms of uh, route of administration and so forth. Was was there anything that was striking in this study? Was there a better outcome with uh, oral products or topical or inhalation and uh, products that were predominant in THC as opposed to C- CBD and any of those associations? Yeah. The biggest thing that came up is I thought this was somewhat interesting is that patients that used more than one route of delivery seem to have greater opioid reduction in, in, in terms of their their dosages. I think that for a lot of people, they're, they're using different routes of delivery during the day or at night or different products. The, the challenge that we discussed in the last podcast is that uh, we don't have great, reliable data from our patients. You know, the way the way my practice works is I do the certification, I make product recommendations, I write them down on an informational sheet, and then the patient goes to the dispensary to make a purchase. They might follow my guidelines and pick products that I thought might be helpful, and they might get swayed by the pharmacist at the dispensary or someone that works behind the counter. And so um, I never know exactly what patients purchase at the dispensary, and when I ask them uh, the details of their medication when they come back for a follow-up visit, three-fourths of the time, they're not really sure or they don't know at all. And so, you know, obviously that's an area that we need to get better about collecting data that's accurate because everybody wants to know 
how much THC works for this type of pain, how much CBD needs to be added, which route of delivery is most effective. Um, but, but what we see is that give people three months and let them try a few different products that most of them are able to self-titrate to a dose that um, provides some symptom relief and um, either provides no intoxication or what a lot of patients describe as like an acceptable level of intoxication that doesn't interfere with their activities of daily living. Interesting. So they're titrating themselves. Essentially. I mean, I, I'm giving them a, a place to start and, you know, the old recommendation to start low and go slow. But, you know, I, I think there is a little bit of trial and error with this drug and uh, everyone has different responses. Uh, everyone has different endocannabinoid systems and receptors. And I have found that even some elderly folks who've never used cannabis sometimes have somewhat high tolerance and need more THC than I was expecting. And I also see habitual users that can still get a good effect from only two and a half or five milligrams of THC. So Ari, uh, I'm going to jump on a soapbox here for a minute to preface my next question, but we alluded to it briefly in our earlier podcast, but the position that cannabis continues to hold as a schedule one drug at the federal level described as a drug with no medicinal benefit and high addiction potential puts it in a very difficult category for research. One of the reasons that we wanted to have you as our guest and one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation is because we all have a great deal of admiration for folks like you who don't see that as an impenetrable barrier and continue to try to move forward with cannabis research under those difficult uh, you know, situations. So that being said, when I was reviewing your research and looking at some of the reviews, I was struck by some comments that were, went along the lines of, well, this is not high-powered research, it's not, uh, you know, controlled, and all it's doing is providing propaganda for the cannabis industry. How would you respond to that, in my view, unnecessary and unworthy criticism? Well, I think, I think we all know that cannabis does not meet the criteria or the definition for a controlled, like a controlled substance that's, you know, schedule one. I, I think everybody knows that cannabis isn't as harmful as we've been told it, it is back in the day. We, we see many other more harmful substances that are illegal in this country, and it's, it's ultimately a political issue. I think the people that try to knock the research, you know, need to check themselves because in other countries there are controlled trials that are, um, you know, very higher quality studies showing that cannabis has a lot of therapeutic potential uh, for treating things like multiple sclerosis, seizure disorders, and even chronic pain. Um, so we're really just trying to add to the available research that already exists. This isn't brand new research that we're presenting. I mean, admittedly, we're, we're reinforcing what's already been published in a way and trying to become more specific about what are the best ways to use cannabis and who are the best patients that might benefit from it. But uh, I, I think, you know, it's a matter of time before our laws change and before we're able to do this research. I, I think 
Um, the rest of the world has, has handled the Ill- illegality issue. Um, big countries like Canada and um, Australia and Israel and Europe is, is embracing, you know, cannabis research and science. And uh, I, I think that uh, the, the industry is, is here to stay. I, I mean, it's really a, a booming industry for a lot of reasons, and it's the m- most popular intoxicant in the world, really. And um, whether people are using it for recreational purposes or medicinal purposes, I think, you know, we, we really owe it to society to, to learn what the risks are, because it's not risk-free, no drug is, uh, who's at risk and who should really avoid these chemicals and who is safe to use them. And uh, I, I think we, we know a lot. We know a lot more than people think, but there's, there's, a, there's a ton that we, we still need to learn. And I think it's unfortunate that, you know, the medical community isn't embracing this topic more. I know you guys have talked on prior episodes about the lack of medical education in, in schools. And, um, you know, this is our human physiology that we're ignoring. And I think there's a, there's a lot we can learn from, from the human body by studying cannabis and cannabinoids. And uh, there's too many people that are suffering with chronic illnesses that, you know, deserve other alternatives that are safer. Ari, uh, can we turn to the to the second clinical trial that uh, that you referenced earlier, and and that's patients with low back pain caused by spinal stenosis, lumbar spinal stenosis. And I I see that in that particular study, CBD was the uh, compound that was used as opposed to full flower cannabis or a THC uh, dominant product. Was there a reason for that? Yeah, you know, we we when we started off, we um, we really wanted to do a. It's it's kind of interesting, Les. We got very lucky, and we we got this study approved to look at hemp derived CBD before Epidiolex was approved by the FDA. So it's actually kind of a unique and interesting story because it does highlight the legality issues as they pertain to research. And so when we got this study approved to look at hemp CBD for spinal stenosis patients, there was no FDA approved version of CBD, which is Epidiolex. And therefore we were able to give people this product. And we partnered with a a hemp company that provided gel caps with CBD and patients were able to redeem a coupon if they were if they qualified for the study and then the company would mail them hemp CBD capsules. Now, we weren't giving them the capsules, but this was kind of a workaround, but essentially they were receiving free hemp CBD. But fast forward to post Epidiolex, now doing a CBD study like we did would have required uh, an IND uh, institutional new drugs trial and uh, investigative new drug trial, and basically would have changed the the whole format and cost of the study. Um, and so that that study was to look at an available supplement that was uh, you know could be purchased online and to see if it had an effect on you know patients with spinal stenosis. 
And can you remember the doses of CBD that were being used? Yeah, these were uh, 15 milligram capsules. And we were not allowed to tell people how to take it, but the information on the on the supplement box basically said you can take one twice a day. So we were under the assumption that people were taking these products, but we, we weren't able to confirm it. We observed them, and this was a prospective observational study, but it did have its fair share of limitations because being in the study didn't prevent these patients from getting epidural steroid injections, doing physical therapy, taking other medications like NSAIDs or gabapentin. And so it's not 100% clear whether or not, you know, the CBD was what helped. But that, that was our first crack at, at doing a cannabinoid study at, at Rothman. And, and a lot of these issues also, uh, it seems to me, Ari, are uh, complicated by the difficulty in creating control groups. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think the, the, the issue is doing a study with a control group that's getting a, a placebo, and, and, and in which case you're, you're having to give the patient, you know, the, the, the active or inactive drug. And, and I think that's where, you know, the IRB has gotten uncomfortable with any cannabinoid studies because of the federal restrictions. And because you can't prescribe a Schedule One drug, you can't give that drug in a, in a study. Uh, or in the case of CBD, now that it's sort of under the jurisdiction of the FDA, any clinical trial looking at a different use of CBD for a different condition turns into a new drug trial. In my practice now, what we're doing is we're, we're giving the same questionnaires that we give the cannabis users to people that aren't using cannabis. And that's sort of our new control group. So it's, again, still prospective observational data collection, but we're looking at patients with similar orthopedic conditions over time. One group is using or has access to cannabis and the other group doesn't. But it's tricky because cannabis isn't hard to get, and some of our patients that aren't medical patients might be using cannabis, you know, recreationally, but also to treat symptoms or to improve sleep. And I, I think that's another challenge when you when you're doing cannabinoid research is you're you have to believe your patients and ask them whether or not they're you know regular users or not. You know, it's, there's just more challenges. Ari, it's Hal again. Can you? Tell us a little bit about some future thoughts that you have for research. Are there other areas uh, that you're contemplating uh, studying? Yeah, I think in addition to some of the obvious stuff where we are trying to look at dosages and ratios of THC to CBD, I think that's still a, a, a remaining unanswered question, you know, we, we, we know that there are potential therapeutic effects of cannabidiol, but we really don't fully get what's the proper dose and how much in relationship to THC. But topical cannabinoids, to my surprise, have been um, very efficacious for patients with chronic pain and joint pain. And um, in my experience, topical THC seems to be really helpful. And the reason I'm so interested in, in doing a, a study on uh, topical THC is it's, it's not intoxicating. Uh, it doesn't seem like topical THC penetrates into the bloodstream. So um, patients can use these products during the day 
while they're at work or driving. And I've seen varying um, durations of benefit. So some people are getting, you know, several hours of relief. And many of our patients have told us that topical THC lotions, cream, salves work better than over-the-counter diclofenac gel or Bengay or things like that, lidocaine patches. So I, I think for, for orthopedic pain, these products are interesting and, and worth studying. Um, the other thing that I'm interested in, frankly, is you know the risks of long-term cannabis use. Like I mentioned earlier, um, the one validated cannabis use survey that is available for research purposes is really looking at uh, recreational users. And, and I'm curious whether or not there's a, a real high risk of cannabis use disorder in the medical population. And I, I think that's something that, that needs to be looked at because, again, we're, we're looking to use cannabinoids to treat chronic illnesses. That means they need to be safe to be taken for years, if not decades. And uh, we, we need long-term safety data on people using lower dosages of THC to see if there are you know, cognitive effects or potential for addiction. Ari, this is Les. We are uh, running out of time here, and I think we could have this conversation go on for hours. And, and I just want to uh, express on behalf of myself and Dr. Altman, who joined us today, our sincere appreciation for you spending the time to have this conversation with us and our audience. I, I think it gives a, a really terrific real-world perspective on the benefits and challenges of performing uh, meaningful medical cannabis research. So thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Cannabis Grand Rounds. We want to, again, thank Dr. Grice for his participation and wish him the very best going forward. So long. All information, material, and content on this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional and or medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment by a qualified physician or healthcare provider. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. Cannabis Grand Rounds LLC does not offer personal health or medical advice. If you have a medical emergency, call your doctor or call 911 immediately.